0: All right. Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you can hear me nice and clearly. And uh, I trust the Lord will bless our time together in the word of God. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. And I want to just read one verse. And because it's just one verse, I'm going to take the liberty of reading it twice just to make sure that it resonates in our minds. Matthew 27, verse 19, it says this, When he was set down on the judgment seat now, of course we got to ask the question who is the one who is sat on the judgment seat and of course it's Pontius Pilate that is sat on the judgment seat it says his wife sent unto him saying have thou nothing to do with that just man for i have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him And let me read that a second time. When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him saying, have thou nothing to do with that just man for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. God will add a blessing to the reading of his precious word to us this morning. Have you ever been given bad advice? I'm sure you have at different times. It's kind of interesting that in the Bible, there are a number of occasions where bad advice is given. Uh, Quite often it's from women, and uh, again, not that they have the, uh, as it were, the market on bad advice. Uh, Men can be equally good at giving bad advice, but the ones that stand out in my mind would be Eve, as, you know, she took that fruit and she gave it to her husband and uh, is talking about, well, it looks good to eat, and all the rest of it. That was pretty bad advice. Uh, We think of Job's wife in Job chapter 2, verse 9, oh, if ever there was a piece of bad advice, there was a piece of bad advice then. What what she said to her husband was this, curse God and die. That was really bad advice. And then, of course, we think of Jezebel, and she was a veritable fountain of bad advice. Uh, She was constantly given bad advice. And here, I want to suggest to you is a piece of bad advice that is given by the wife of Pontius Pilate. And this is the advice that she gives. Have thou nothing to do with that just man now again i think that maybe her motives are right she realizes perhaps that uh, the the jews who had for envy uh, delivered uh, the lord jesus we see it in the previous verse verse 18 he knew pilate knew that for envy they had delivered him and so she knew that they were trying to somehow back her husband into a corner maybe she's trying to warn him and give him some that uh, maybe her motives were right, but I wanna just take it as plain little sense here, have nothing to do with that just man. Because I really believe that that was really bad advice. Bad advice for many reasons, I'm gonna just give a few of them. One of the reasons why having nothing to do with that just man was bad advice is that it's impossible for a human being to have nothing to do with that just man. Let me explain what I mean And I'd like you to turn uh, to John's gospel chapter five for a moment. And by the way, if you have a ribbon or some kind of marker in your Bible, I would encourage you uh, to actually put a ribbon in John five, because we're going to be going back and forth to John chapter five during our session together this morning, but John five. And just a couple of verses, verse 22 and 23, which show that this advice of Pilate's wife is bad advice because it's absolutely an impossibility. Because it says this, For the, va- the father judgeth no man, this is John five twenty-two, but hath committed all judgment unto the son, that all men should honor the son, even as they honor the father. Either that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. And so we say it's impossible advice because God has determined that all judgment has been given to the Son, the Lord Jesus, so that every human being will have to one day face the Lord Jesus and will have to have something to do with that just man. In fact, we could say this, that those that are saved one day will sit at the, or stand at the judgment seat of Christ and have something to do with that just man. And those that are unsaved will one day stand before the great white throne judgment and will have something to do with that just man. So, so God has determined that every person, whoever they are, they must deal with Jesus. They must have dealings with him. And of course, it's much better to have dealings with him now And uh, as it were, repent of your sins and believe the gospel and, and accept him as your savior now, then have to face him as your judge, at that great white throne judgment. But ultimately, every human being will deal with the Lord Jesus. Second reason it was bad advice is because she tells us that the reason that he's to have nothing to do with that just man is because she, she says, I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. Now we don 't know the details of the dream. would you ever uh, you know there are times when you read scripture, and wouldn't you just love to know exactly what she dreamt that day? <laughs> I, w- I would love to know what she dreamt, whatever it was, it disturbed her greatly, and she said she suffered much because of what she uh, had brought to her in that dream and so to as it were to get away from that suffering, she tells her husband have nothing to do with that just man, and what she 's doing is she 's She's exchanging short-term suffering by saying have nothing to do with that just man for eternal suffering. Because if she followed the advice she gave to her husband, and if for the rest of her days she had nothing to do with that just man, I can assure you on the basis of the word of God that she is suffering right now. Not a daydream but she's suffering with the rich man in Hades. She's tormented in those flames. She's crying out for a drop of water to cool her tongue, and she will suffer throughout all eternity because she had nothing to do with that just man. So not only is it bad advice because it's impossible to fulfill, secondly, because it exchanges short-term suffering for eternal torment. Tragically that same advice is being pushed throughout our world today. Uh, In fact, as our society becomes increasingly secular, and it is becoming very secular, and there's no doubt behind this advice that is coming to the people of today, the young people of today, the people in our colleges, in our universities, even in our school systems, uh, that this mantra have nothing to do with this just man keeps coming, but behind it's a satanic origin. And we need to recognize that this is a lie from the pit. You must have something to do with this just man. Even religious systems that you think of Judaism and uh, passages that might just remind you about this just man, Passages like Isaiah 53, they're not allowed to be read on public occasions because you might just get the idea that it's speaking of the Lord Jesus, the suffering Messiah. And so it seems that there is this constant, constant barrage coming to the human race. And it says this have nothing to do with this just man. And even from your own flesh, maybe as a young person here. And your own flesh would say to you, don't get involved with Jesus. Don't don't have anything to do with that just man, because he's going to cramp your style. He's going to somehow, uh, you know, inhibit you from, from living, uh, having the good time. And it's the same old lie, have nothing to do with this just man. And it's tragic. It's a tragic piece of advice. I want to give you a piece of good advice. And that is this, have dealings with Jesus. Have something to do with him and have something to do with him even today. Make him your Lord and Savior. You will never be sorry if you have personal dealings with the Lord Jesus. Now let's go on a little bit further and think about this text. I want you to notice where it begins in verse 19 with when he was set down on the judgment seat. And so it's kind of interesting that uh, here's this scenario. Pontius Pilate is sitting at the beamer seat, the judgment seat, and Jesus is the one who's on trial. But I want to tell you the next time that Pontius Pilate meets the Lord Jesus, there'll be a role reversal. And Pilate will be not sat on the judgment seat, but it will be the Lord Jesus who is seated on that great white throne. And Pontius Pilate will stand before him, and he's going to be examined by the judge of all the earth, the Lord Jesus. And so there's going to be a role reversal you know it's tragic really Pilate's life was a very sad life uh, after this event i don't know whether it haunted him uh, to the day of his death but he died prematurely we're told by tradition that pilot committed suicide in fact we could take you to the spot in the alps there's a place it's called pilot's leap where pilot leapt to his death prematurely at his own hands Because it haunted him, this miscarriage of justice that he had been guilty of when he, as it were, washed his hands and said, I am having nothing to do with this just man. And he will rue that day throughout all eternity. Then the second thing I want us to look at from that text is simply this. Have nothing to do with that just man. Interesting what she calls the Lord Jesus. She calls him that just man. It doesn't just mean that he was innocent of all charges. Even Pilate acknowledged that. He said, I can find no fault in him. And that was true. Uh, He certainly was uh, innocent of all the charges, but he was more than just innocent. He was actually positively innocent. Holy. The Bible tells us that he was the holiest man that ever walked this earth. Uh, It tells us that in him was no sin, that he did no sin, uh, that there was no guile found in his mouth, no deceit. He was the holy one. And there was not only no sin in him, everything about his life spoke of positive holiness. Yes, he was a just man. And so why did he die? Well, the Bible leaves us in no doubt. It says Christ also in First Peter 3, verse 18, hath suffered once for sins, the just. Yes, that just man for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being quickened by the spirit. She said, I've suffered many things, she says. Because of him. Because of him. And it is because of him that people will suffer in eternity. You see, the ultimate sin that condemns the human race is their sin of rejecting the only offer of salvation in the person of the lord jesus let me explain what i mean this is the ultimate sin this is the sin that damns men for all eternity it's their refusal to have anything to do with this just man it's their rejection of the the sin bearer the savior of calvary that condemns them to eternity in the lake of fire look at john 16 please for a moment want you just to see verse 7 through 11 it says nevertheless i tell you the truth It's expedient for you that I go away. But if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And then it says this, when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin. I want to think about that. Uh, The the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this age for the world is to reprove them, to, to show them their fault, to convict them, as it were, of sin. And it's a specific notice. It says not sins. It's not convicting them of their sins, although in the process they may be convicted of their sins, but it's a singular sin that's in view here. Convict them of their sin. What is this singular sin that the Spirit wants to convict men of in this day and age? Notice in verse 9, he left in no doubt what the sin is that the Holy Spirit wants to convict men of, of sin because they believe not on me the sin that will separate men for all eternity from god is that they refuse to believe on the lord jesus let's look at another scripture john 3 please john chapter 3 verse 18 just again want to emphasize this is the sin this is the sin singular that damns the human race more than anything else it is what condemns men john's gospel chapter 3 and verse 18 it says this, he that believeth on him, oh, what marvelous words, he that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Why is he condemned already? Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You see, it's because they will have nothing to do with that just man. Now, here's an interesting thing. I recently read a very interesting article on the BBC website. And it was by a team, uh, this article was a team of scientists that set out to measure the brain waves of an 87 year old patient who had developed epilepsy. But during the neurological recordings, amazing what man can do with his technology, actually being able to record the brain waves of a man, and so it says that during the process of recording his brain waves, it says he suffered a fatal heart attack, offering to them an unexpected recording of a dying brain. It said it revealed that in the 30 seconds before and after, the man's brain waves followed the same pattern as dreaming or recalling memories. I want to just think about that. So, thirty seconds before the man died, thirty seconds afterwards, the brain is showing that memories are coming to this man. Now, let me just put it this way: you often heard it said that when somebody is about to die, all their life flashes before them in an instant. In this this recording, published in Frontiers Magazine. for aging and neuroscience seems to indicate that that is true that in the last 30 seconds before a man passes this world all memories flood back and i wonder is it god's last attempt to reach that dying soul and that in those 30 seconds every time they'd ever heard about this just man every time they'd ever heard the gospel will be brought before them to give them one last opportunity before their dying breath to accept the Savior. Well, I don't wanna encourage you to wait and see if that's true. (laughs) I, I want you to be sure this morning that you're right with God, that you have had some dealings with this just man. Now, I want us to follow Pilate for a moment. I want you to go with me now to Revelation 20. Uh, again, I think it was announced that I was going to speak on this, and you might say this doesn't sound like a resurrection message. Well, don't don't worry, uh, we're going to get resurrection message uh, in our uh, speaking this morning. And actually, uh, you know, I love when I'm preaching. I I, I, I love to listen to the message before at the Lord's supper, and so often something somebody says just confirms in your own heart the message you're about to give. Well, it happened this morning. I'm not going to tell you what, but you'll get it when I say it. But in Revelation twenty, from verse eleven through fifteen, and I want us to imagine Pilate in this situation now. Well, you just, as it were, put yourself in Pilate's shoes, because now the roles reversed, and the one who was seated on the judgment seat is now standing before the great white throne judgment. And so I want us to look at this judgment. I know you're familiar with it, but I want us to just kind of bring it before us. And what I want to mention is several things. I want to uh, just to try and simplify it. I want to talk about, first of all, the place of the judgment. I want to learn some details about this great white throne, exactly what we can learn about it, the place of the judgment. And then we want to think about the person of the judge. We've already thought a little about him, but we want to think more about it the person of the judge. And then we want to think about the people who are judged. And then finally, we want to think about the penalty of the judgment. And I suspect that you're going to find this interesting because I know that uh, somehow, well, certainly Americans, I don't know about Canadians, but I suspect you're the same. But there's a fascination with courtroom dramas. I know that for lots of reasons. Uh, I remember uh, many years ago, uh, there was a courtroom drama in the US and it was about an American football player called OJ Simpson and he was on trial. And it was almost like the whole nation came to a standstill as everybody watched the trial. Is he guilty or is he not guilty? And of course, people remember that in all kinds of detail. Uh, of course, uh, There are TV programs that uh, people watch. I've never watched them myself, but I understand uh, things like Judge Judy and all this kind of stuff. And people are captivated by this. They love uh, these dramas. Well, I want to tell you, this is a courtroom drama that is going to occur in a future day. But it's it's a courtroom drama that is very different to any other courtroom drama you've ever witnessed. Let me tell you about some of the unique features of this courtroom drama that we read about in Revelation 20. First thing I want to say is that there's a judge, but in this case, there's no jury. It's just the judge. Secondly, there's a prosecutor. Evidence is going to be produced. We're going to see books are going to be opened. The evidence is going to be presented, but there's no defense attorney. There's no clever lawyer that's gonna get you off on a technicality. No, there's no defense attorney. There's a sentence, but there's no appeal. In other words, this final sentence that will be given, the judgment of the human race, its results will be conclusive and irrevocable. No appeal, uh, no way of getting off, Uh, on, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, light, uh, you know, uh, serving time and then getting released. This is it. This is going to be a permanent state as a result of this final judgment. So we think about the place of the judgment. Look at verse 11 of Revelation 20. It says, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. So the first thing we learn is it's a great white throne. See, we're living in a world where increasingly there's nothing black and white anymore. What I mean by that is there's no absolutes. Everything is just gray in our world. Uh, we, we, we say that um, there's just there's nothing absolute anymore in, in our world. The idea of black and white is very laid out, very clear in the Bible. Uh, Good and evil. Uh, It's just laid out in a very, very clear way. And this throne is white. It's a great white throne. And the idea is this. It reflects absolute righteousness. It it, it reflects the purity and the righteousness of the one who's seated there who will execute the judgment. And, of course, we're familiar, aren't we, of the whiteness connected with the Lord Jesus we see it in the book of revelation he's the one riding on a white horse we see him in revelation chapter 1 his hair is white like wool we see it elsewhere on transfiguration mount where his garments it says are white whiter than any any fuller can make it and uh, you know it's kind interesting one of the places i've been in the past is a place in in mumbai in india And uh, a friend of mine, he took me to this place overlooking uh, this area where uh, there's outdoor laundromats where the various Indian people are cleaning and washing white garments. And it's amazing when you stood up on the hillside as the sun uh, reflects on the whiteness of the garments. It just is shocking how brilliant it is. In fact, it's so brilliant that uh, Lever Brothers and Procter and & Gamble have sent experts there to figure out how do they get these things so white. And, of course, the answer is very simple. It's called elbow grease. <laughs> they scrub and they scrub and they scrub and they do it really hard. But it, it's it's brilliant. Well, the Lord Jesus, uh, he is well, the whiteness shows his absolute righteousness. This judgment will be dispensed in perfect righteousness. It, and it, it'll be very clear that it'll be absolute. Uh, there'll, be, there'll be no black and white. Uh, his, what he says is true. Uh, he'll be judged according to the truth. It'll be done in absolute righteousness. And then the person of the judge. I want you to notice um, that it says, the one who is seated on this great white throne. uh, Who is that? And we've already learned from John's gospel, chapter five, that God has committed all judgment unto the son so that everybody honors the son as they honor the father. Let's look again at John five, at some other scriptures in John five that relate to this, John 5, 26. It says, for as the father hath life in himself, so hath he given this to the son to have life in himself and hath given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. That's an interesting thing. One of the reasons why the Lord Jesus is judge is that if it was God the father who was the judge on that throne, that one of the human beings who is being judged might be able to say to him, well, it's okay for you, God. You have no idea what it is to be here on this earth. You never lived here. You don't know what it is to be rejected. You don't know what it is to grow up in a poor family. You don't know what it is to go up in a way where you're rejected in your own household. You don't know what it is to do a day's work. You know, what do you know? You've been up in heaven. You're, you're remote from all of this. But nobody will ever be able to say that to the one who's seated on that great white throne because the Lord Jesus was here. The Lord Jesus experienced rejection. The Lord Jesus did our day's work and worked hard. He grew up in a poor family, in a poor neighborhood. He experienced life. And so nobody will be able to say, you don't know what it's like. Oh, yes, he knows what it's like. He was here. And so he's the son of man. And he will execute judgment. I want you to look at Acts 17. This is where we get uh, our resurrection. I wanted to make sure that we, we, we bring this idea of resurrection into the picture this morning. In Acts 17, in verse 30, it says, The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness. By that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance to all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Part of the fact of the resurrection is a testament and proof that in a coming day, Jesus is going to judge the human race. Uh, The resurrection ascertains this idea or gives this idea. It's God giving assurance that in a coming day, that man, the son of man, we've already learned about, that man who was down here, he is going to judge all men. He's going to judge the world in righteousness. It's going to be by that man who he has ordained. And he's given a certainty of this because he raised him from the dead. And he is the one who is going to sit on that throne, and so the the point is simply this: You can ignore the Lord Jesus Christ. You must do business with Him. You can either meet Him this morning as your Lord and Savior, or meet Him that day as your Judge. And there's an appointment, and there's no escaping that appointment. Notice that it says concerning Him. And I want you you to think about this. This is an amazing statement. Again, it says in verse 11, I saw a great white. This is back in Revelation 20, verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And so I want you to get this scene because you see the earth has been a place where men has sought to escape from God right back from Genesis chapter four, when Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. And it's a place where man has tried to kind of live without God, to hide himself from God, to just, but you see, it says the earth and heaven flee away from his face. In other words, the idea is this, there's nowhere to hide anymore. It's just going to be you in him, looking into that face. And and there's no escape. And notice the face of him the face that was spat upon, the face that was blindfolded and buffeted, the face that was marred more than any man's. And I think it's going to be a horrendous thing to look into that face. We think about Peter, that when he had denied the Lord three times with oaths and cursings, when he came out of Pilate's judgment hall, it's kind of interesting that the Lord Jesus never said a word to Peter. It says he just looked at him. And it says, Peter wept bitterly. I think it's going to send horrors down every person's spine when they look into the face of him. Face of him from whom heaven and earth fled away. Yes, you have to look into those eyes. Those eyes that scripture says are like a flaming fire. So the next question is, well, who are these people Who were judged. And again, I want you to go back to Matthew, uh, to, to John's gospel, chapter five. And we want to notice. Verse 28 and 29. It says, marvel not at this. for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life. And they that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation or the resurrection of judgment. And so what we're learning here is uh, that there's a day coming when everyone is going to hear the voice of the son of God. Those that are in the graves. Remember the story and I'm sure you remember it well of Lazarus. And many have said, and rightly so, that it's good job. It's a good job, the Lord Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, because if it had missed the word Lazarus, all the graves would have emptied, because such is the authority and power of the voice of the Son of God, that when he commands, the graves are emptied, all will be raised. And so it's kind of interesting, such is the power of his voice. But it tells us that there's two resurrections. There's a resurrection of life and there's a resurrection of condemnation or judgment. Now look back at Revelation 20, please. And I want you to look at verses four and five of Revelation chapter 20. It says, I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. Somebody mentioned this morning in the Lord's Supper that we will be part of the first resurrection. Well, I hope that's true. I'm not assuming that everybody who's listening to my voice this morning will be part of that first resurrection. I hope that everybody will be part of the first resurrection. But how do you get to be part of that first resurrection? Notice uh, back a- a- again um, in John 5, it says in John 5, 29, it says, shall come forth, they that have done good <coughs> to the resurrection of life. Excuse me. And then it says, and they that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. So there's there's two resurrections. There's the first resurrection. And all those that have done good will be part of that first resurrection. They're going to live and reign with Christ a thousand years. After that thousand years, the rest of the dead, they're going to be raised again. And they are those that have done evil. And they will appear before this great white throne judgment. And so, of course, we have to ask the question, well, what is the good? that those that have done good have done? And what is the evil that those that have done evil have done that is going to cause them to be part of this second resurrection, the resurrection of judgment? So again, we've got to somehow find the answer to that question. What is the good that they've done? Well, again, Go back to John 5. That's why I told you put a ribbon there. I told you we're going to go back and forth. John 5, verse 24. Notice what it says. Verily, verily, the Lord Jesus, truly, truly, this is the truth. You better get this. I'm repeating it for you so you don't miss it. I say to you, he that hears my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation or judgment, but is passed from death unto life so what is the good that they've done well they heard his word they believed on him that sent him they have everlasting life they're not going to come into condemnation they've passed from death unto life so the good that they've done is that they've actually believed the testimony concerning the lord jesus that he was the one that god sent into this world as the savior of sinners that he died, that he was buried, that he rose again. They believe this testimony, and that's the good. In fact, it's the the best thing that a human being could ever do. It's the goodest good that a man could ever do, is to believe on him. Let's go a step further. Look at John 6 and verse 29. John 6, verse 29. We read these words. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God. That you believe on him who he hath sent. If you want to do God's work, you can't do God's work unless you do this first. This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he hath sent. Good John 6 and verse 40. This is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And so we can see clearly that the good that those that are part of that first resurrection have done is that they've simply believed God's testimony concerning his son. They believed that he was the one who came into the world. They believed that he was the one that died as the sinner's substitute on Calvary's cross. In their place, in their stead, they believe that he was buried. They believe that he rose again the third day, and they have embraced that. They have made it personally. They've said, Lord, I'm the sinner that Jesus died to save. And they have thanked him for dying for them, repenting of their sins, believing that message. They have become part of what will be that first resurrection. And what is the evil? that those that will be part of the resurrection of judgment have done? Well, it's simply this. They have rejected the only savior of sinners. They have refused to believe the testimony of God. They have called God a liar and his son a liar and a deceiver. They have refused to believe that message. So again, back to Revelation 20. And notice it says, concerning the people who were judged. It says, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Notice it says the dead, small and great. What that means is that... um, there are people that have lived and died, and we don't know who they are. We don't know anything about them. Their names never made the who's who list of our world. They just lived. They they lived their lives. They died. They didn't believe the gospel. They didn't accept Christ. But they just were. They're the small. They're the insignificant as far as world history is concerned. But then he says, I saw the small and I saw the great stand before God. Yes, the the greats of this world. The the great artists, the great philosophers, the, the, the great historians, the great statesmen. And just think about it. If they have not accepted the Lord Jesus, some of the, the great people of our day, the Justin Trudeau's, the Mr. Putin's, the Hollywood elite, the ones that have nothing to do with that just man love to ridicule him love to ridicule those i think of bill gates who considered going to church to be a waste of time an inefficient use of time and one day he will stand before that great white throne yes the small and the great and the books will be opened and it's interesting it talks about the books plural and then it talks about a book singular. The books plural, if I could put it this way, are the records of earth. It's the personal record of each individual sinner from birth to death. It's, it's, it's this is your life, so to speak. It'll be presented clearly before you. Now, I want to kind of update it if you like what we, we, we think of books. And by the way, God it keeps perfect records. Uh, his his record keeping is impeccable and his his software never breaks down. Uh, he never has an outage. Everything will be preserved perfectly. But I want to update it and I want you to imagine this, this morning. I want to imagine that it's you that's standing before that great white throne judgment. And you, the books are opened, or if we could put it this way, we could say this. Uh, your life was presented on the screen before you. Now, just imagine you're looking at me on the screen today, but can you imagine any one of you? I don't know anybody would volunteer. We'd like to, as it were, put your life on this screen, every aspect of it, from the moment you were born to the day you died, and play it before us all to witness it. Anybody would like that? I think it would be intimidating, wouldn't it? You see, it says the books were opened and uh, it tells us um, the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And you see people latch onto that and they say, oh, that's great. Well, hopefully my good works will outweigh my bad works and, and um, you know, kind of the, the weighing scale will tip in my favor. But let's just kind of dispel that myth for a moment. I want to read from an obscure verse uh, from Ecclesiastes, but it really... Uh, tells us exactly what's going to happen in that day of coming judgment. Ecclesiastes and chapter 12 and verse 13 and 14. It says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. God will bring every work into judgment. So it's all going to be brought there, every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And so just imagine your life brought before you, every secret thing, things that you thought nobody was watching, God was watching. If actually he recorded the event, every secret thing. In fact, not just the things you did. Even the things you thought about doing, because the law says if a man thinks about a woman to lust after, her, he's committed adultery in his heart already, he's guilty of adultery just because he thought about it, never mind doing it. And so imagine this. I'm sure that if your life or my life was bent on the screen, what we want to do is we want to press the erase button. We won't want people to see that bit or that bit or that bit. We'd be constantly pressing that button. We don't want anybody to see that, but you won't be able to press the erase button. The only way that you can press the erase button is to do it now and settle out of court. How do you do that? Well, you've got to deal with Jesus. You've got to come and say, Lord, I am a sinner. I deserve hell. I deserve the lake of fire. I am a wicked sinner. But Lord, you sent your son to die for me. I accept him now as my savior. I, I I repent of the sin I've done. I trust the Lord Jesus as my sin bearer and savior. And you know, that if you would do that, you know, the amazing thing is God himself will press the erase button. Because what the Bible tells us, if we believe this new covenant message, you know what it says? It says your sins and your iniquities, I will remember them no more. And so as your life is on the screen, <laughs> Everything that was a sin is going to be eradicated from that screen. Isn't that going to be wonderful? And and the idea is simply this. Through the work of the Lord Jesus, we often sing it, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole, was nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. So there's this. These books, it's the records of earth. This was your life. And, of course, uh, every mouth will be stopped and all the world will be found guilty before God. I love that. Again, think of courtroom drama, Every Mouth Stopped. Uh, Anybody who might want to try and, uh, as it were, put a positive spin on what we're witnessing, and they might say, ah, but your honor, silence, Every Mouth Stopped all the world guilty before God and then another book is opened and it's called the book of life now i want us to look back in revelation 13 just for a second i know our time is fastly running out revelation 13 well you just look there for a second verse 8 and notice it gives us some more details about this book of life All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Now, that's not the Lord Jesus. That's the beast, the Antichrist, this man of sin, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And so what is this book of life? And why is it necessary to have it there on this day at the great white throne judgment? Well, this book of life is the book of life of the Lamb slain. And what it contains is the names of all those who have had something to do with that just man. And they have seen their need of the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world to be their Lamb. In the Old Testament, they would bring a lamb and they would lay their hands on the animal that is about to be sacrificed. And what they were doing was they were acknowledging their guilt and that they were transferring, as it were, their guilt to this innocent substitute. And this, this innocent substitute would die and shed its precious blood in their place. And all those are in the Lamb's Book of Life, as it were, by faith, have, as it were, laid hands on the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God and said, Lord Jesus, I'm a guilty sinner. But you died for me. You bore my sin in your own body on that tree. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for me. And of course, the Bible is replete with pictures of this lamb, Cain and Abel, Abraham and Isaac, the Passover lamb. We could go on and on. My own son, James, my oldest boy, four years of age. We were in the Philippines at that time. I was doing devotions, family devotions with a four-year-old boy. And he, in the middle of the devotions, we're talking about Noah when he came out of the ark and he offered a lamb. And James said, Dad, where can I get a lamb? I said, James, why do you want a lamb? He said, Dad, I'm a sinner. I need a substitute. (laughs) And I was able at four years of age to point him to John 129. Behold, the lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And to this very day, he bears that testimony that he trusted in God's lamb. You see... The Lamb's Book, Life of the Lamb Slain. <laughs> Is your name in that book? Because if it isn't, there are serious consequences. Why would it be necessary to have that book there? Because sadly, there'll be some there before that great white throne who mistakenly think that they're really saved and they're not saved. Ah, oh, they went to Sunday school. They were maybe in the youth group group at, at at downtown outreach church, and and their parents were believers, and and they they knew the hymns and they knew, they knew the Bible verses. They could quote John three sixteen, but somehow they never ever personally saw their need Christ to be their savior, and so they'll say. Surely I must be in that book. And so there'll be a search made. What's your name? And they'll be looking down. the name. No, It's not there. It's not in the book. And I ask you, is your name in that book? Is your name in that Lamb's book of life? And if it isn't, why you must have something to do with that just man is I want you to look at the penalty of the judgment with me just for a moment. It says, verse 14, death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. One of the things about hell is that memory will remain intact. The Lord said to the rich man, In Hades, son, remember. I believe that every gospel message you've ever heard, every gospel tract that's been given to you, in hell, if you have nothing to do with that just man, in hell, your memory will recall all of those opportunities you had not to be in the lake of fire but to be in the presence of God and his holy angels. And it will eat away at you and gnaw away at you throughout all eternity. Oh, can I appeal to you with all the passion that I have, if you've never done dealings, if you've never settled out a court, if you've never uh, got your name in that book, The Lamb's Book of Life, that this morning that you would do it you would get real, do dealings with the Lord Jesus, repent of your sin, believe the gospel, and trust in him. For those of us that we know our names are written there, are we spreading this message? Are we telling others? Because realistically, it's the only message that matters in the light of eternity. What will you do with Jesus who is the Christ? Those of us that have settled out of court, those of us that have no fear of that day, because we won't be there, we won't be we'll be with the Lord Jesus on the other side. Are you thankful for that man of Calvary? Are you thankful that he shed his precious blood for you? That that he was buried that he rose again that third day are you rejoicing in your salvation today have you are you still basking in the wonder of it all and are you do you still have that fresh glow in your heart that he loved me and he gave himself for me may God encourage us those of us that are in that book to live like it's true Like we're forgiven, that we're on our way to heaven, and yet we want to take others with us. We want others to join us. We want others to have their names written in that book. May God encourage us, and those that are not sure, don't leave this morning until you have done business. That you can say, actually, I have had something to do with that just man. (laughs) I believed on him. I trusted in him. He is my Savior. May God encourage us with these words. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray again for your Holy Spirit to use the word of God, however you see fit this morning. But Lord, we assume in a group this size that there would be at least someone who has never closed in on that offer of salvation who have never actually done dealings with the Lord Jesus, that just man, that this morning they really might realize in a fresh way the urgency of settling their eternal destiny. Oh, Lord, for those of us that have settled the matter long ago, we settled out of court, we did it a long time ago. But, Lord, we ask that you would fill our lips with messages for thee, that we would be quick to proclaim this glad tidings that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he's risen, victorious, conquering death, and that it's possible for us to be connected with that heavenly man at your right hand, to pass from death to life, to be associated forever with resurrection and the one who was gloriously risen from the grave. We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus for his glory, amen.